Welcome to the Security Weekly News wrap-up for the week of 11 September 2022. We got Meat Men, History, Putty, Crypto, Edge, YouTube, EU Laws, Privacy, and all the show wrap-ups. So stick around. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. Right now, everybody is talking about cryptocurrency and the cyber criminals are hiding in the conversation. Cyber criminals use social engineering loaded with urgency and fear to successfully prey on your company, your employees, and your customers. Spear phishing is just one of the 13 types of email threats. Barracuda has identified 13 types and shows you how you can protect your company, your customers, and your reputation. Find out about the 13 email threat types and Barracuda email protection by going and getting your free ebook at securityweekly.com slash barracuda. That's securityweekly.com slash barracuda. All right, I'm Doug White, and this is the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up Show, episode 239. Yeah, that's a lot of episodes. Uh, All right, this week on Application Security Weekly, number 211, Joe, John, and Mike had on Sonali Shah, the Chief Product Officer at Invicti Security, uh, and Sonali was on to talk about the challenges and misunderstandings about the term shifting left. So we haven't actually seen anybody talking about shifting left in a, in a bit. I know that the industry is still talking about it, but it was a big, you know, big story thing for a while. Uh, but they came on to talk about this, had a lot of tips uh, on how to implement web app security programs and so forth. So if you are doing that sort of thing, it's probably worth your time. In the second segment, the AppSec News. On Business Security Weekly, number 276, uh, Jason, Adrian, and Tyler had on uh, Carl Triebis, uh, the Senior Vice President of Product Management and General Manager for Application Security at Imperva. Uh, Carl was on to talk about app and API development and how you can use some tools to mitigate risk without causing massive delays because that's always, of course, the issue with security. When you start pushing anything into the life cycle, it, you know, it causes delays in development. So how can you get around that? And in the second segment, the leadership and communication news. On Enterprise Security Weekly 288, uh, Solo Adrian had on Patty Harrington, a senior analyst at Forrester Research. Uh, Patty was on to talk about enterprise browsers, and so we've been seeing a lot of stories about that lately, about Facebook and other or Meta and other companies developing their own browsers. Uh, so, so Patty was on talking about what those kind of browser, what enterprise browsers do, what's real, what's just you know fantasy, and what makes this different from other solutions, which you know basically promise to secure all your browsing, because that's a big deal, right? In the second segment, Sean Metcalf, the founder and CTO at Trimark, was on. Sean was talking about ways to move beyond the default configurations of Azure AD and Microsoft Office 365, so two big platforms that a lot of people are getting involved with in the cloud. Uh, Sean went on to have advice about how to perform your own security review of your Active Directory. Uh, I really like this segment. and, and and so sorry, I was busy stealing all this information for one of my classes, but uh, I would definitely uh, check that out if you're managing AD or you're involved in AD in any way. In the third segment, enterprise security news, 
On Security Weekly News number 238, Jason talked about KeyBank and how a lawsuit, uh, which emerged based on their breach that they had, uh, is changing how cyber liability works. And so a pretty interesting segment. Uh, of course, Jason's always got something interesting to talk about. Ron Paul's Security Weekly number 755, Thomas Kinsella, uh, a, a fun guy, was uh, the chief operating officer and co-founder at Tynes, was on to talk about, uh, you know, like we always do, like a bunch of things. Uh, but we were trying. We were really, you know, talking about automation of tasks, which involved times. But uh, we were also talking about burnout and, you know, what tasks to operate. You know, and all the usual stuff that we talk about on there. So it's lots of fun. Uh, we did talk some about fear of automation and and you know people worrying about that and so and that kind of thing. Uh, we did talk about uh, having a con in Dublin though. So Paul kept saying at a distillery, but Dublin's good. You know, so if somebody wants to do that, uh, I'll be happy. I'll be happy to come and speak. Uh, in the second segment, the cybersecurity news, uh, the threat of the week for me is going to be history or lack of history. I think it should be lack of history. So on the, we were they had this story on on the show on Wednesday night, and we were talking about it a little bit there, and it, it kind of made me feel bad. Um, I mean, it was sort of a fun story, but uh, the story was about how this museum in Slovenia. Uh, would like to get a mint copy of OS2 Warp version 4 in Slovenian. So they were collecting these things. And I don't know if you knew this, but uh, way back when IBM was trying to get people to adopt Warp. So OS2 was IBM's attempt to get into the, the OS business at the PC level. And the, the first couple of versions, OS1 and OS2, uh, they weren't very good. I mean, they, OS2 was... I, we tried to install it a couple of times. One time we got it working. But by the time they got the OS2 Warp version 4, uh, I actually felt like that was an, a viable operating system alternative to Microsoft that, that end users could use. I mean, I, I, I understand Linux, Linux, and, and I love Linux too. But for end users, it's just not always true. And But I always wanted to get away from Microsoft. And OS2 Warp uh, version 4 was actually sort of viable. Um, well, IBM was trying to get people to adopt Warp because it's so difficult to get people to switch operating systems, and they weren't having much luck. Everybody was running Windows. Windows was starting to sort of, you know, coalesce as the key to the market. And so IBM basically went after target markets which weren't Microsoft-intensive, so they had a lot of foreign-language editions of OS2, uh, and they put them in those markets. It was, a, it was a good marketing strategy. It didn't really work, but you know, it was it was a good idea. So that the story made me think about all the things that I have sent to the great bit bucket in the sky when I moved or when somebody died or whatever. And I mean, you know, my father, uh, when he, when we were cleaning up after my father died, we were cleaning up. He had pristine and some in the wrappers copies of VP Planner, a defunct and illegal and lost a lawsuit company. There was a, a really nice copy of that on uh, on uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Uh, he had Lotus one two three on three and a half inch disks. Windows ninety eight and the original packaging and all this stuff. And I because I usually just installed his stuff from my copies and then used the licenses on on his packages and we never even bothered to open them. But we didn't know what to do with all this stuff, and so off it went to recycling, which probably means a guy named Bert took it to a bonfire in New Hampshire or something. But and, and the same thing happened with my friend Lou. I mean, when, when Lou died, there was literally a house full of weird electronics and old software, that, uh, including stuff like OS1 and OS2. I, I didn't have time to dig through all that stuff because I didn't really have any right to do that. But uh, 
you know, there was tons and tons of stuff there, you know, old Fortran compilers and all this kind of stuff. And, and it was it was really like a museum of electronic weirdness and old software that you could have maybe sold some tickets to. But it made me think that it's a shame that all these releases, you know, and you think about how many different releases there are of things, for, whether it's Windows or, and so forth, uh, but they're all just sort of lost, like, you know, like tears in the rain. I mean, I've seen SUSE Linux in German off the shoulder of Orion and Music OS installed in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate and so forth. You know, I mean, what happens to all that stuff? I mean, I, I've, I've thrown stuff like that away before because I just didn't know what to do with it. And Lou, who was a lot like Rick Sanchez, uh, which might make me Morty. It might even make me Jerry. I don't, I don't know, but, but I digress. But even Lou didn't know what to do with all this stuff. I mean, he always kept it because he was like, well, what if I need to set up a machine to run OS 1? Or so, you know, and you're like, would you really? So it just sat there till the estate people show up and scrap everything. You know, it's like the, all the estate people do is come in and go, is this worth something? No. How about this? It's an ashtray. We can sell it for 50 cents. Um, so, but it's, it made me start thinking that maybe we should start thinking about creating some kind of a, an online repository and, and maybe somebody's already doing this and we, and I just don't know about it, but I mean, there are definitely some of you out there who have the money to build such a thing. You could hire me to run it. Yeah. At, at a very outrageous and inflated salary with an expense account. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm up for that, but you know, maybe there should be an online museum of old operating systems and software so that people, you know, in the future could go back and look at that stuff and go, Wow this was horrible or it was awesome. You know, I would, we should review this. And I mean, it wasn't all bad. I mean, just because it was old, I mean, OS two version four was pretty good and it was a product I thought might take windows out, but didn't happen, but it was just, you know, it was a thought, but I mean, you know, can you find Eryx or, or HPUX or Solaris DOS 5.1 windows 3.0? No, windows 3.0 was not good. Make, make no mistake. But you know, I mean, all those things, are, are they out there somewhere? Is there like an online repository that you could go get these things? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, I don't know. But I mean, I finally just tossed out all that old stuff. I mean, I had a whole basement full of it. I threw away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of floppy disks because I didn't know what to do with them. And when, you know, when my father died, he had thousands of floppy disks and VHS tapes and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it was his whole life and it made me feel bad to throw it away, but we didn't know what to do with it. So maybe it is a good time to start curating the history, you know, like the Library of Congress with books and things that we, we start collating code and or curating code, not collate, don't collate it, curate it. But I mean, it would be, it would kind of ensure that all this stuff gets in the library of Congress, which does have a digital division, or at least it was a private repository that people could access in the future. You know, like in 30 years, if somebody wants to go see a copy of windows NT running on hardware from 1995 and show the grandkids, you know, I mean, that would be pretty cool. I mean, I mean, well, it cools a stretch, but I, I do think a lot of us might like to go see our old fave. I've gone to some of those old hardware museums, which is really cool to see your PDP-11 console or something sitting there, you know, like, oh, look, I worked on that. But I mean, and, and also, if you do have a copy of OS2 version 4 in Slovenia and help these people out, I mean, contact us if nothing else, but there, there was an article attached. So, and now the news. Permandiant, the group UNC4034 or Labyrinth Kolima, don't know what that means, in North Korea is responsible for Trojans being found in PuTTY SSH. PuTTY, if you don't know, is a, a very common SSH tool that's free from PuTTY.org. Uh, every school on earth uses it. Uh, but it, th this backdoor is being deployed uh, in, in its AirDrive version 2. So this is a, a Trojan that, that has a lot of capabilities. Uh, Mandy has said this is a, con a continuation of an operation called Operation Dream Job, which first started up back in June of 2020. Uh, but this time the target is media companies. 
And so this is, if you, if you recall this, the attack begins with the old, hooey, have I got a new job for you? Almost impossible to believe the salary. Well, you're going to need 32 bits to put this salary in the register. Yeah. So just click right here and let's have a discussion on WhatsApp. So they get you to go to WhatsApp and then they go, oh yeah, well, like, let's make sure you're the right person for the job. Why don't you download this file? And it's got an, an assessment and the jobs are supposedly at Amazon. And so you download this ISO. Well, the ISO has a readme on it, which has an IP and login credentials with a Trojanized version of good old putty or sometimes kitty. So Kitty's another SSH tool uh, that's not as well known as putty, I think. So if you do this, so you use the putty and you log in with the credentials, the program deploys a Dave shell, which if you've seen that, it's a, a, a shell code manager, is a DLL, and it's called color, uh, colorui.dll, and it, ha it is packed uh, with Themida. And Dave shell then executes the dropper, which unloads the AirDry payload onto your system. And so then AirDry begins this process while you're sitting there, you know, hoping you're going to get this Amazon job. AirDry begins this process of trying to connect to, uh, at, I think there was three command and control IP addresses in that, you know, that were hard coded in there. And so uh, I anyway, it, it's a, a big problem. And then of course, then they can drop whatever they want in your system, or they can let you be there as, as a, you know, a tool. But uh, if you do need to check any of your copies of Putty, if you open the properties menu, uh, you can see if it was digitally signed by Simon Tatham. Kitty SSH was also used, but it was not signed at all, pretty much. So you'd have to use VirusTotal or something to see if it has been backdoored. Oh, and you, you don't get the Amazon job either or the salary. Yeah, not, not that I tried, but, you know, I mean, sometimes. Um, anyway, the number of websites promoting cryptocurrency giveaway scams went up more than 300% in the first half of 2022. The targets are English and Spanish speakers, and they've sort of added some new uh, twists to all this. This particular scam uses celebrity deep fakes, which is a, a big thing now. And we've seen, you know, deep fakes of, 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 of President Joe Biden, of Donald Trump. <clears throat> this one has deep fakes of various celebrities and well-known people in the tech industry uh, to try to encourage you to click on the link. Group IB identified more than 2,000 domains that were registered in 2022 that appear to be specifically for the purpose of this crypto scam. Um, they used top-level domains like .com and .net to make it look more legitimate. The deep fakes included Elon and other recognizable people. The promotion typically arrives from a compromised account that is either hijacked or rented from hackers who get a cut of the scam. So at the end of the day, this is the same old, same old as any, uh, you know, any scam throughout history. It sounds too good to be true. Uh, they're offering to give you crypto to get you started, uh, you know, in this. And, and these deep fakes are used to try to tell you that it sounds like a great idea. I mean, you know, when Elon tells me to invest, baby, I invest. But, but this is a real threat, uh, you know, and you might want to warn your people about it because sometimes people do sort of fall for these things because they see, ah, I'm Elon Musk and I, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, check it out, but, but it's certainly useful at phishing and the deep fake stuff is such a big deal now that uh, they're even starting to make deep fakes of, you know, like deep fake phishing attacks. So pretty soon they'll probably be getting uh, deep fakes of the president of your company or something like, and here is President Fisher with an announcement, you know, and, and everybody says, oh, I better check this out. 
Well, since it's apparently scam Friday anyway, and ongoing malvertising. Malvertising? I, I, I kind of like malvertising. I had an uncle, or uncle named Malger, but malvertising? I've been using Adverscam. Anyway, either, you know, Adverscam, malvertising. Anyway, this one's in Microsoft Edge newsfeed, and basically it's an ad injection attack. So this is where somebody gets a fake ad or whatever they want, and they, they push, push, push until they can drive it to the top of the ad list, and it gets you to click on something. And, of course, this one in Edge gets you to click on a tech support scam. So if you click one of the, the clickbait type things, you basically end up at a tech support scam. Malwarebytes threat intelligence team said it has been running at least two months and it is very extensive. So the clickbait ads basically result in a script, examines your browser to determine where you're located, your time zone and all this other stuff. And then one of two things happens. One of them takes you to a decoy site and the other one takes you to a tech support scam. So it pops up a Windows Defender box that says, but it's a browser in a browser box, pops that up and says, hey, uh, call this number. Uh, the script makes this decision. They, they, weren't, they didn't give a lot of detail about exactly how it was deciding whether you were a worthy target or not, but they said even the time zone may determine whether they think you're worth going after. Uh, the tech support site, if you call them, or, or when you do call them uh, about the security block, tries to sell you apparently some kind of tech support contract, which is a scam. So if you do agree to purchase it, then they basically take your money and, and, and you never hear from them again. So, uh, you know, at the end, it's just another type of classic scam. A new malware bundle uses victims. Uh, it uses your, your YouTube channel, assuming you're the victim, to upload malicious video tutorials uh, on your account, which then advertise more of these things. Uh, which include fake cheats and cracks on popular video games, which it's really hard to imagine somebody searching for a cheat site getting scammed. But yeah, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, the malware bundle has been promoted in YouTube videos, which targets fans playing FIFA, Final Fantasy. They all start with Fs. FIFA, Final Fantasy, Forza Horizon, Lego. Oh, no, Lego, Star Wars, and Spider-Man. So they're not all Fs. Um, I I'm sure it targets other games as well by now. I guess my copy of Leisure Suit Larry didn't interest them, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, I threw that away. Somebody asked me about it later. And I was like, I did have a copy of that, but I actually tossed all that stuff years ago. Uh, Kaspersky found that it's a RAR archive, which contained a collection of malware, including Redline, which is a pretty common, uh, well-known information stealer. Uh, Redline can steal your, your passwords, your cookies, your credit card information, and just about anything else, including crypto wallets and instant messenger conversations out of your browsers. Um, a, a miner is also included in the RAR, which, you know, of course, use the GPU to mine crypto. Uh, the bundle has a batch file that executes three different executables. Make our Makisa Karusi, wait, Makisa Karisu, which I, I probably should Google what that means. Download.exe and upload.exe, which, uh, which are uh, Makisa Karisu is a password stealer. And so it tries to grab your YouTube password. Then the video downloader downloads the, the fake promotion video from YouTube and then turns around and tries to upload that back onto your YouTube account. I mean, that's, that's pretty sophisticated, but also kind of simple if you think about it. So if you click that link on the video, it downloads all this stuff to your machine, steals your YouTube password, and then pushes a new copy of it back up. 
And of course, these things have all sorts of back ends associated with them and steal credentials and whatnot. The EU has revealed a new Cyber Resilience Act that will require manufacturers of connected devices to secure them properly before shipping to the EU. They also require disclosure and patching of flaws and a guarantee of support for the device for, for five years. And this applies because it's called connected devices, just about everything, which would include phones, stoves, your car. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, is there anything that is not connected that's currently being sold or has the potential? So pretty much everything. So this is legislation they've been working on since 2021, and uh, it introduces mandatory cybersecurity minimum requirements for products that have digital elements, and it's designed to apply to the entire life cycle of the product. So this is really starting to get extensive. So they're not just saying you have to put a sticker on the product that says this was evaluated. You have to actually agree to support this product for up to five years so that means patching it and so forth. You can't end of life at a month in. And I mean, you know, how many times you bought a motherboard and found out they weren't supporting it anymore, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely going to be a pretty dramatic law. If the law is put in place, which is expected it will, products that wish to be sold in the EU will have to comply. And manufacturers are being given two years to adapt new requirements. Uh, but they, uh, the vulnerability and incident reporting requirements will go into effect after just one year. Now, this is, the, this is the interesting part. Fines of up to 15 million euros can be issued for violations. And it says if, if the 15 million isn't the bigger number, it could be 2.5% of the offender's total worldwide annual turnover from the preceding year. I mean, now that's, <laughs> that's another EU law with some teeth in it, right? I mean, it's like they're not fooling around. Uh, maybe the U.S. needs to get in on some of this stuff. I would, wouldn't that be nice? But maybe. Uh, in fact, California did implement a law yesterday uh, that's maybe not a very good law. They should have read some of these EU ones. But it's designed to protect online privacy, supposedly, by demanding more information from everyone. Yay! I always love it when, when your online privacy is going to be protected by you giving up even more information. Um, anyway, um, this is called the Age Appropriate Design Code Act, and it is based on a UK age-appropriate design law that, can, that, that that is already in place. The law requires online platforms, and this is what it says, to consider the interests of children in the design of their services and to provide children with settings that default to privacy. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. At, I mean, I mean, it's so vague. And it's like, how do you do that? So in order to, to protect children, you have to identify that they're children, right? So you immediately violate their privacy to protect their privacy. Fight the Future released a statement that said, quote, the bill is so vaguely and broadly written that it will almost certainly lead to widespread use of invasive age verification techniques that subject children and everyone else to surveillance while claiming to protect their privacy. Yeah, that sounds about right. So now they've actually got your age, which means they know what year you were born. They can sell that information. Yeah, on and on and on. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but I guess time will out, as they say. Not a fan of that thing. And finally, this sounds like a good way to get Terminators. Meaty Terminators. Yeah. 3D printed meat. Oh, boy. Uh, stakeholder Foods in Israel, uh, which used to be called Meat Tech 3D. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. 
they had good move changing the name to stakeholder, which is still not it's spelled S T E A K by the way. Stakeholder uh, used to be called Meat Tech 3D. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm really enjoying that name. But probably a good change has started making something called omakase beef morsels. Yeah. All righty. The meat chunks are developed using 3D printing. So they're actually printing this meat with a 3D printer. And no living animals were harmed in this process. Uh, the source for the printing comes from starter cells that grow in a lab. You know, we've seen this kind of lab-grown meat before coming out of Israel. Uh, but now, instead of just them growing, you know, like a burger patty or something, uh, they're actually making, I don't know what, it didn't say what you're getting to do this, but you use a printer, like in your restaurant, I guess, and you print something that looks like Wagyu beef. You know, so this was their demonstration, was Wagyu beef, you know, with all the marbling and all this stuff, So, the, but the printer's making it, so it's printing layers, and you end up with a steak. Other companies have tried this in the past, but Stakeholders 3D Printed Beef printed the world's largest cultured steak so far, and it was a steak chunk that was four ounces which would be pretty expensive with Wagyu beef. That's 110 grams for everybody else in the world. Um, but uh, they, some, they, they, they did this back in December. So, I mean, I would definitely try it, but I sure feel sorry for whoever has to change those toner cartridges down at Benny's Printed Steakhouse. Yeah. That's a wrap-up for the week of 11 September 2022. I'm Doug White, and we will see you next week. <laughs>